Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 9? Last week in our study in the book of Joshua, we saw as Israel was marching forward in their conquest of the land of Canaan, we saw how a group of six nations listed in verse 2 of Joshua 9 joined forces to fight against Israel. We also saw how one nation, the Gibeonites, decided to try a different tactic and sought really to deceive the children of Israel into making a covenant of peace with them. And we said last week that here we have laid out the two main methods of attack that Satan will use against the people of God. He will use direct assaults and deceptive alliances. The Bible says that Satan is both a roaring lion and a subtle serpent. As a roaring lion, of course, he comes against God's people openly and directly to attack us, terrorize us, persecute us, you know. And we see that especially going on, well, throughout the history of the church, but we see it even today in certain parts of the world where Christians are living under communist rule or in Muslim-dominated countries. And um, the devil is using people to come against them openly, directly, to terrorize and persecute. Satan has always used that tactic. It's nothing new. But sometimes he can't really work that way, or the best option is to do something a little different, and so he takes the role of a cunning, subtle serpent to deceive. And that really is what he did with the Gibeonites. That's the kind of form of of attack he worked through them. Now, just by quick review from last time, Gibeon was the next city on the road to conquest. Ai had been conquered. The next city was Gibeon. And in Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 to 20, God had forbidden his people from making any covenants or treaties with the people of the land of Canaan. God had given them enough years, 400 to be precise, uh, which they were given to repent of their sins and turn from their idolatry and child sacrifice. And my goodness, it was just horrendous, the things that these people practiced, demonic things. God gave them plenty of time to repent. They refused. And so God says, now the judgment time has come. You are not to make any alliances or treaties with these people. None of them. Now, in time to come, God said, when you face other nations outside the land of Canaan and other cities that you go up against, you may offer treaties of peace to them, terms of surrender where you'll make a treaty with them of peace, but not with any cities in the land itself. They are to be wiped out completely. Now, Gibeon was located only 25 miles from where Israel had set up camp in Gilgal. And we learned last week that Gibeonites knew what God had told his people. He knew, they knew there was no hope of entering into any kind of covenant or treaty with the people of Israel because they knew God had forbidden them from doing that. But they figured, look, if we could pretend maybe that we came from a long ways outside of Canaan, If we could deceive Israel into thinking that, you know, we live a long way outside the land, maybe, possibly. We could deceive them into making a covenant of peace with us because they knew that was their only hope. And so what do they do? Well, they put on really old ragged clothes, you know, uh, old worn out sandals. They took uh, old uh, backpacks, threw them on their donkeys, real old and disgustingly ripped up looking things, you know, wineskins that were kind of torn, but it had been mended, you know, and and, uh, they took moldy bread and stale wine, you know, and they went to Joshua 
and the leaders of Israel and said, look, we've come from a very far country and we've heard about you guys. We heard about how God led you out of Egypt and and how God took you up against some of the kings of the deserts and has given you victory. We know your God's a mighty God and we want to make a covenant with you. We want to, you know, be allies. And Joshua said, well, how do we know that you don't live near us? Oh, come on, look at us. All right. Look at these clothes. These were new when we put them on when we left for this journey. I mean, this bread was hot in our hands when we left. The wine was new and put in new wineskins. Look at everything. It's all worn out because of the length of the journey. Verse 14 says, Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Joshua and the leaders of Israel were deceived into making a covenant with the Gibeonites because they violated a cardinal rule when it comes to serving God, living for God, and fighting the enemies of God. It's a principle that Solomon would later record in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, where he said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own human understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will direct your paths. See, here's the problem. Reality involves a lot more than we can perceive with our five senses. Again, we are fighting a spiritual war, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It's a war not with flesh and blood, not with people, but it's a war against the devil and his wicked army of demonic beings who live in the spirit realm. And as such, our human senses are totally inadequate in and of themselves to allow us to properly perceive and understand what the devil is trying to do to deceive us at any given moment in our life. Look, I'm not saying that our human senses are no good. God gave them to us, of course. And he gave them to us so that we could, you know, make everyday decisions that affect our lives in the physical realm. And as such, they're reliable under many circumstances. I mean, for example, if you were to pull a piece of meat out of the refrigerator and it was discolored and it smelled bad, Your senses are telling you if you eat it, you're probably going to get sick. See, we use our human senses for making judgments and decisions like that every day in many different situations. And you know what? That's fine when you're talking about small and rather insignificant decisions. The problem is we become so dependent on our own human senses and so used to relying on them for those little decisions that we make every day that when it comes to the bigger decisions, decisions that really affect our lives in substantive ways, decisions that will affect our walk with God and our ministry for God, sometimes, in fact, many times, we rely on our own human senses or understanding to make those kinds of decisions. And that's how Satan is really able to trip us up. And that's why Solomon warned us in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, not to rely on our human understanding when making important life decisions, but to trust the Lord and pray and believe that, you know what, if we seek, we really want his will, and we pray and we seek him, he will direct our paths, he will lead us in making the right decisions. Of course, this was what Joshua and the leaders of Israel did not do. When it came to the Gibeonites' deception, we read in verse 14, that the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. When it says that Joshua and the leaders of Israel took some of their provisions, 
it doesn't mean that they ate some of their moldy bread and tasted some of their stale wine. Some of the commentators actually said they did that. I don't believe that that's what happened. It simply means they took these things into their hands to examine them more closely to determine whether or not the Gibeonites were telling them the truth. But see, that's where they made their mistake. They relied on their human understanding and their five senses, basically, in making a decision that was going to have some far-reaching ramifications, spiritual implications upon the nation. And in so doing, and not seeking counsel of the Lord, they went ahead then, and based on what they saw, looked good. I mean, gee, I mean, look at these people. Look at the way they're dressed. Look at those clothes. Obviously, uh, they've come from a very far distance. I mean, they've come from a long way, right? And because of it, they entered into a covenant with the Gibeonites, a deceptive alliance that would have negative consequences upon God's people for many generations to come. I like what Alvin Redpath said with regard to this. He said, and I quote, Alas, the tragedy is that the Gibeonites have crept into church life and into personal Christian life, into Christian business life, and into Christian home life. Satan has come in disguise, and he is sapping away the very strength of our witness. Oh, the subtlety of the enemy. But let me point out to you also the stupidity of the children of God. The language of verse 14 in this chapter is very ominous. They did not ask counsel of the Lord. It seems to take us a long time to learn the lesson that neglect of prayer always leads to trouble and destroys the spirit of discernment. Neglect of prayer always suggests pride in our own judgment, which is fatal. Satan as an angel of light is so plausible. The foolish virgins so resemble those who were wise. The terrors sown in the field are so similar to the wheat. The voice of the hireling sounds so very much like the voice of the shepherd. Bypath meadow runs right alongside the king's highway, and there is only a very narrow, soft shoulder between the two. End quote. It reminds me of what someone said one time. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Again, Redpath completes his thought on this topic by saying, Never, never, never trust your own judgment in anything. Well, he might be overstating it a little bit. Let's put it this way. Never trust your own judgment in anything really important. All right? When common sense says that a course is right, lift your heart to God, for the path of faith and the path of blessing may be in a direction completely opposite to that which you call common sense. When voices tell you that action is urgent, that something must be done immediately, refer everything to the tribunal of heaven. Then, if you are still in doubt, dare to stand still. If you are called on to act and you have no time to pray, don't act. If you are called on to move in a certain direction and cannot wait until you have peace with God about it, don't move. Be strong enough and brave enough to dare to stand and wait on God, for none of them that wait on him shall ever be ashamed. That is the only way to outmatch the devil, end quote. And I kind of think that this is what God was trying to do with Joshua and the children of Israel. He was trying to get him to stop for a minute. He was making them feel a little uneasy about this group of people that had come to see them to make an alliance with them. We read in verse 7, Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, or the Gibeonites, Perhaps you dwell among us, 
So how can we make a covenant with you? Sounds to me like the Lord was giving them some discernment, right? Sounds like to me like the Lord was saying, oh, oh, put the brakes on for a minute. Something's going on here that you don't understand. Uh, this situation is, is more than meets the eye. God will do that. That's what discernment is, by the way. Paul talked about the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of discernment. What is the gift of discernment? It's nothing that specific. It's just all of a sudden you got this feeling in the pit of your gut. Something isn't quite right here, you know? I mean, the situation looks one way, but something isn't quite right. It's God's way of saying, stop, don't go any further, and you pray. Until you have the peace that God gives that you're on the right course. It sounds to me like God was giving them some discernment here. That instead of being sensitive to the Spirit's prompting, they did as we so often do, brushed aside the discernment of God and went ahead and entered into this covenant, this unholy alliance. We read in verse 16, And it happened at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and some others here. Verse 18, But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. Verse 16 says it took three days to discover they had been deceived by the Gibeonites. Three days to discover their mistake, but a lifetime to live with the consequences. Now, I want you to understand something. And I believe this is at the heart of what God is wanting to teach us in this passage. Even though the Gibeonites deceived God's people into making a covenant with them, in the eyes of God, the covenant was still binding. You say, well, wait a minute, that wasn't fair. They tricked them. They lied. They deceived God's people. They shouldn't have to honor that covenant. Hey, Joshua could have prayed, right? Nobody, you know, twisted Joshua's arm to enter into a hasty covenant. Just like nobody twists our arms to enter into the covenants that we make. He who believes shall not make what? Haste. God will always give you time to pray about the important decisions in your life. The only way the devil can really trip you up is to get you thinking you've got to act right now. You've got to go for it right now. No time to wait. If you wait, you're going to lose the opportunity. Then lose the opportunity because it's not from God. God wants you to take time to seek Him. Now, it doesn't have to be three months of fasting and praying necessarily. But it needs to be a good, serious time where you set time aside to pray and to seek the Lord. Joshua and the children of Israel could have done that. They did not. They entered into a hasty covenant. The covenant was binding. In fact, it was so binding that 400 years later, when King Saul broke the covenant and began to kill the Gibeonites, God sided with the Gibeonites and judged Israel. There are two important spiritual principles at work here. Two principles that many of God's people today seem blinded to. First of all, a covenant is a binding contract. It's a solemn promise in God's eyes. Not to be entered into lightly, 
but once entered into is a legally binding thing that is not to be broken. The second principle is one that Dr. G. Campbell Morgan put his finger on when he said, and I quote, A false step taken by a Christian can be forgiven by God, but you must live with the consequences the rest of your life. You know, many Christians feel that if they rush ahead of God and make a mistake based on ignorance or irresponsibility, all they need to do is confess it to God and ask for forgiveness, and it's all taken care of. It's all over. And that's true. The sin is forgiven. But the consequences are not removed. The law of sowing and reaping is still in effect. It's like a young Christian girl who makes a bad decision and decides to have sex with her boyfriend and gets pregnant. After she does this, and she comes to her senses and says, God, I was wrong. Lord, forgive me. I, I was wrong. I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyways. God forgives that little girl. But the baby is not wiped from her womb. The consequences remain. Now, the consequence of something like that is a, is a child who God loves and is made in his image. But for the young girl, it's going to be, look, God didn't want her to have to try to raise a child that's 16 years old without a husband. Now, God will be a father to that child, and God will provide for that girl and her child. But there are consequences there that don't just get erased because we, somebody says they're, they're sorry and they've done something wrong. It's good to repent. It's important that we confess our sins. And God does forgive us because he's a good and gracious God. But the consequences often remain. Look, the commitments we enter into hastily without seeking wisdom and guidance from God, when we find out that we have been deceived or that we have made a mistake, if we confess to God our sin of presumption, rushing ahead, not really waiting on Him, not really seeking Him with all our heart, but we rushed ahead, threw a token prayer up there, and rushed ahead and got into this commitment, and now we find out later on that we've been deceived or we made a mistake. Look, if we confess to God the sin of our presumption, God promises to forgive us. But the commitment, folks, still stands, and so do the consequences we are left to bear. That's why Solomon's admonition in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 is so important. Because the devil tries to make the situations that he is behind, you know, he's got all kinds of great opportunities for us, sometimes relational, sometimes business, you know, just one-of-a-kind deals, you know. And they come at us, you know, and it looks like, you know, as the old saying goes, it looks like it's a no-brainer, a slam dunk. Why even pray? It's got to be God. Why? Look at the blessings that's going to happen to us if we get into this situation. That's the time when you really need to watch out. When things look like a slam dunk, oh, man, and look at the blessings. Why even bother praying? That's the time when you need to pray. And the bigger the decision you're thinking about making, the longer you need to take time to pray and to fast even. Because if we don't, if we don't seek God, for his discernment and direction, we may find ourselves in an unholy alliance that is going to only drag us down spiritually. And, of course, the obvious example here is marriage, isn't it? I'm sure most of you are thinking that's where I'm going. Although we could really think of many other examples of situations that would fit here, I think marriage is the one that really stands out. And let me just say this. If you're not married right now, do not do not get married until you have really taken time to pray. And I would suggest fast and pray since this is a decision that's second only in importance to your decision to follow Jesus Christ and giving and making a commitment to him. 
When you enter into a marriage commitment with another human being, you become one with them. That is going to impact your spiritual life like few other decisions you will ever make on this earth. And so if you're not married, I would really suggest that you really, really pray. I'm not talking talking about throwing up a token prayer because this guy's Prince Charming. It's He's Mr. Wonderful. Uh, you know what? It's obviously God. You know, when we're together, I hear music. Hey, look, you know what? I don't care what you're hearing. You better stop and pray, and you better pray long and hard. That's your responsibility. I'm convinced if you do that with the right heart, really wanting God to direct, he will, if you give him time. If you're one of those who got married before you got saved, and now you're a Christian but your spouse is not, or maybe you were a Christian before you got married and your boyfriend or girlfriend convinced you that they also were a Christian, and even though you felt some uneasiness in the pit of your stomach, maybe like Joshua did about going forward with this commitment, this covenant, well, you ignored it though and went ahead and got married anyways only to find out sometime later that the person that you're now married to was not who you thought they were. They had deceived you. What do you do? You ask God for forgiveness for your sin of presumption But know this, the covenant is still binding in God's eyes. I can't tell you how many times over the years I have heard people in bad marriages tell me, well, I wasn't walking with the Lord when I married that person. See, I mean, I was really far from God. And uh, so, you know, my judgment was all off. And, you know, I just went ahead. But I was not walking with God. So now that I've come back to the Lord, I can really divorce them, right? Because, you know, I can't be held accountable for what I did when I was backslidden. Wrong. Wrong. If you would have prayed, even though you were backslidden, I'm sure God would have spoken to you. Or I've heard people say, you know what, I was dating this person, and boy, they gave me every indication they were a Christian. They came to church with me, and oh, they wanted to read the Bible together. And then when I married this person, all of a sudden... They don't want to go to church anymore. They don't want me to go to church anymore. I can't read the Bible in the house anymore. They deceive me. Certainly, I have grounds to divorce them. No, you don't. The contract, the covenant is still binding. Jesus said in in Mark 10, verses 11 and 12, he said, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery against him. The only legitimate grounds for divorce, Jesus said, was unfaithfulness. Otherwise, you have no biblical grounds to divorce. In fact, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, in verses 10 and 11, he says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, And a husband is not to divorce his wife. In the context there is Paul was dealing with it was this. The Corinthians had written Paul a letter and said, look, you know what? My wife and I got married or my husband and I got married before I got saved. And now that I am saved, I find myself married to this unbeliever. And he's a real pagan. All right. I mean, God doesn't want me married to somebody like this. God wants me happy, doesn't he? I can divorce him, right, Paul, and marry a Christian guy or a Christian gal. And Paul says, look, if you're married to an unbeliever, And they're content to remain with you. You're not to divorce them. You're not to divorce them. If you do divorce them without biblical grounds, you are to stay unmarried the rest of your life or be reconciled back to them. 
You say, well, what about in cases of abuse? You mean to tell me the Bible is telling me that if my husband's abusing me physically, that I need to stay in that relationship? No, separate. No woman should stay in a situation where she's being physically abused. That's not what God is saying. We're talking about under normal circumstances, though, not when there's abuse. And hopefully after you separate, maybe he will come to his senses by prayer and so on, and he'll seek counsel and maybe get saved, and then God can heal that marriage. But we're not talking about that kind of thing. We're just talking about the normal thing where a Christian is now married to an unbeliever. For whatever reason, if you were, especially if you were deceived before you got married, thinking they were a believer and you entered into this relationship without really seeking God, look, two wrongs don't make a right. If you divorce your spouse, you simply exchange one set of consequences for another, but you don't escape bad consequences. See, that's what people want to do. They want to escape the bad consequences of their decision. But you don't really escape bad consequences. You just change one set of consequences for another. Further disobedience is no solution to the bad consequences of a prior disobedience. Let me say it again. Further disobedience is no solution to the bad consequences of a prior disobedience. So what's the solution right now? Obedience. You may have entered into this relationship disobediently. You're to remain in it obediently to God. And listen, all is not lost. There is still hope for a future of happiness in marriage. Just because you made a mistake doesn't mean that the rest of your life, the rest of your married life, will be, a, be like a life sentence that God expects you to serve out in misery because you rushed ahead and married a, the wrong person. First of all, let me say this. The Word says that all men and women are joined by God in marriage, right? Whom God has joined, let no man divorce, right? Every, I don't care. We're not talking just about Christian couples. Every couple, because marriage is an institution created by God. So every person that enters into the marriage covenant is being joined together by God. In that regard, all marriages are made in heaven, every one. And I tell couples that even if you technically, and you're not sure you didn't marry the wrong person, but let's just say hypothetically, even though technically you may have married the wrong person, once you said, I do, they became the right person. They became the right person. It may take a little longer than some couples to achieve happiness in your marriage, especially if your spouse is unsaved. But listen, if you trust God and you are the husband, because you're the Christian, you are the husband or the wife that God wants you to be, you trust God and do what God's told you to do and pray for that person, well, I believe that God can work a miracle. And I believe that God can and will make all things beautiful in his time. I think a little longer, a little rougher road, maybe a long rough road. But you hang in there and be faithful to what God's told you to do and trust God. I'm convinced God will touch that person. Just as the title of one book on marriage says, good marriages take time, bad marriages take more time. Let me show you how this was communicated to us by the Holy Spirit in our text this morning. Verse 21 says that the Gibeonites, Israel did not kill them because they promised not to. So they made them woodcutters and water carriers for the people of God. You can read the rest of the chapter, but it basically says that very thing. 
that the Gibeonites were made woodcutters and water carriers for the people of God. Later on, we are told, the wood they cut was used for the fire of the altar of sacrifice and the water for the cleansing ritual of the temple. So in other words, God used these unbelievers, these deceivers, to be the very instruments that God would use to cause the fire of the altar to burn and to purify and cleanse God's people for worship. There is a real spiritual lesson going on here. Listen to me. We're all going to make our mistakes. Every, I have, you have, we still will. All of us are going to make our mistakes. All of us are going to do dumb things at times. I know I have. Dumb things because I didn't pray long enough. I didn't really seek God. Oh, it was a no-brainer. That's the problem. I had no brains. I entered into it. I entered into this thing without really seeking God. And sometimes we make these dumb decisions. And the consequences can be rather unpleasant or even severe. But don't get discouraged. All is not lost. I mean, I think God is trying to communicate that to us through the story of the Gibeonites. God is able to take our mistakes and use them, use them to be the very instruments to make us stronger, pure, and more on fire for him as Christians. You know what that means? It means that that Gibeonite you might be married to, you know, that mistake, quote-unquote, that you're now bound to in marriage, that right now brings so much heartache into your life, is being used by God to be the very instrument that drives you to your knees every day in prayer. I've seen it in our own church. I have seen couples in our church where one is a believer and one is not a believer, and I've seen how hard that is for that person who is a believer and how much they need to be every day draw strength from God. Because honestly, I look at some of these situations and I think, I don't know how they're doing that. I don't know how they're continuing from day to day. It's so bad. You know why? Because they're on their knees each day seeking God for strength. That's the only way. That's the only way you can survive in a situation like that. And in that regard, that unbeliever is being used by God to actually be the thing that sets your heart more on fire for God, cleanses your life more from the inside out that you might worship God. Why? Because you, you have to draw close to God for strength. Absolutely have to. There's nothing like tribulation, persecution, and uh, the consequences of bad decisions to drive us to our knees daily and spending time with the Lord. And uh, that really has some profound effects in our lives spiritually. I've seen some of these people who are going through very difficult situations like that, being married to unbelievers. And uh, I can't tell you how strong they are in the Lord. It's just because they're spending so much time in His presence, seeking strength and grace. But look, I don't want to end on a downer, okay? Um, look, our God is a God of miracles, isn't He? Our God is a God. Our God can take the hardest heart, you know, that hard heart of that Gibeonite you might be married to, that person that you never think is going to get saved, that person that is just a constant source of heartache in your life. God can take that person's heart and break it, whereby he will bring them to their knees and surrender and ultimately salvation. God can do that. I have seen it. Many times I've heard other stories of God taking somebody you never thought would get saved and touching their heart in a way you never thought he would touch their heart. I think of one of our Calvary pastors who I've mentioned before, Pastor Raul Reese, who pastors a very large 
uh, church out in California, Calvary Chapel. His wife's name is Sharon. Sharon grew up in a very godly home. Sharon's parents were missionaries in Chile. She grew up in a very strong Christian home. But she drifted away from God when she got a little older. And uh, at the time when she met Raul, she was not walking with the Lord. And he was, you know, a real bad boy, to, to say the least, all right? And, I don't know, something about him drew her and fascination developed into an into affection, into a relationship. And finally, they decided to get married against her parents' objections because they knew this was going to be a very heartbreaking path that she was considering embarking on. But she was convinced that Raul was the man for her. Maybe she thought to herself, I know I can save him. You know, that's the problem. You girls have great hearts. You're the ones mostly who want to redeem these, these bad boys, you know. And so Sharon entered into this marriage covenant with Raul and I don't know how long it was before God really touched his life. I don't know, three, four, five, six years. I don't know. But during that time, he cheated on her. Uh, there might have been a little physical abuse. I'm not sure. He was just real bad news. But she was praying. Her parents were praying. Her church was praying. And through a series of, uh, of dramatic um, set of circumstances, Raul accepts Jesus Christ. And God touches him to become a pastor. And today he's got one of the largest churches in America and has ministries all over the world and does crusades in various parts of the world and has been used by God to bring thousands and thousands and thousands of people to Christ. You say, well, oh, that's a nice ending. That sounds like a nice... Are you, mean, are you trying to tell me, Pastor Phil, that sometimes it's okay to marry an unbeliever? Because you know what? God could use me to save them and I could have a happy ending like that in my life? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. The end doesn't justify the means. We should never sin that grace may abound. I'm just saying that when we do make our mistakes. You know, our God is bigger, isn't he? Our God can turn our mistakes into miracles if, listen, we don't try to compound our prior disobedience with a further disobedience by going out and divorcing them right away instead of hanging in there. But if we do hang in there and trust God that he wants to save this person, why? Because his word says that he desires for all men to be saved, all people, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So when I pray for my unbelieving spouse or my unbelieving children or whatever it might be, I know I'm praying in the will of God. And the Bible says if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, then we know that we have the petitions we have asked of him. Yes, but what do you mean? God's going to force them? God's going to violate their free will and force them to be saved? Is that what you're saying? No. No, why does God have to violate their free will? Why can't God just ratchet up? Ratchet up, you know, the, the, the tension, the pressure, you know, uh, the conviction. Just keep piling on them all the consequences of their rebellion until they come to a point where they're just, it's easier to be broken and repent and give their heart to Christ than to continue on in that course any longer. Well, God doesn't have to violate our free will. He just makes things so unpleasant in the way we're going. We want to get saved and get right with him because it's just the way we want to do it. But if you hang in there and you keep praying and you keep seeking God and you do keep being the spouse that God wants you to be, well, I, I believe God can take the hardest heart and turn it towards him. Do you know 
We're talking about the Gibeonites, how this worked. You know that 400 years later, King David put the tabernacle in Gibeon. The tabernacle was the place of worship. David put the tabernacle in Gibeon, and it became the center of worship for God, the center of worship of God for a time. We know that at least one of David's mighty men was a Gibeonite. After the Babylonian captivity, a group of Gibeonites were listed among those returning to the land of Israel. They didn't have to come back. They could have bolted. They could have been done with slavery. They stayed faithful, not because they were forced to, but by this time because they wanted to. In Nehemiah's day, the Gibeonites were mentioned as being among the people who helped rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. What am I saying? I'm saying there's hope for your Gibeonites. God can turn a pagan into a spirit-filled child of God and give them a ministry in the house of God, blessing the people of God, not because they're forced to. You know, there's a lot of unbelievers who have these on fire. It's usually the women on fire for the Lord. So they're dragging their, their pagan husband to church. Now, a lot of the guys won't come, but there have been a few over the years where, you know, they'll come and they'll let their wife drag them. And I can tell who they are because they're looking at their watch, you know, and they're not that everyone who's looking at their watch right now is a, is a pagan, but be careful. Be careful now. But I've seen them, all right, you know, and they're dozing off or, they're, you know, looking around and counting the ceiling tiles in the room and whatever it might be. But they keep dragging them, you know, and at one point God touches their heart and they get saved. And now they come to church, not because they're being forced to, they, they come because they want to be here and they want to serve the Lord by blessing his people. God can touch any heart. But only if you don't opt for your own personal happiness and bail on your marriage. And I know it's not going to be easy to hang in there for as long as it takes for God to work in their life. But you know what? You honor God with obedience. You honor God with obedience and do it anyway. And I believe God will bless that. But that's the hard way to go, isn't it? That's the hard. The better lesson to learn from the story of the Gibeonites is to not enter into any decision hastily, especially a very important life decision like marriage, without really seeking God. If Joshua and the elders of Israel had really sought the Lord, the text implies God would have directed them not to make a covenant with these people. God would have shown them what was really going on. You know, one of our missionaries that we support in Africa was going to be uh, was uh, planning on marrying a, a, an African gentleman who was supposed to be a believer. And um, we recognized how much God was using her. And uh, a lot of us began to pray that if this person was really of God, and this marriage was ordained by God, that it would go through and God would show them and give them peace. But if not, God would show her also. And to her credit, she, she's a godly young woman, very godly and um, spirit-filled. She gave God time. She prayed. And she gave us time to pray. And God showed her and us that this guy was a total deceiver. If she would have married this guy, it would have been more horrendous than I could even imagine. Look, a lot of well-meaning Christians enter into marriage with an unbeliever, whether they do it willingly or ignorantly. And I've seen God touch many of those unbelievers and save them. Sometimes quickly, 
Sometimes it takes years. That's a hard thing to deal with. How much better to just simply trust God, pray, before you enter into any major decision. It's not just marriage, folks. It's not just marriage. Any kind of relationship you're thinking about entering into, a business arrangement, anything that involves you partnering with another in any capacity, you need to make sure that you pray about it before entering into that commitment. I've seen a lot of Christians enter into a business agreement with an unbeliever because they bring certain things to the table that they need in this business. That's never a good idea. That's never a good idea. Seek the Lord. Pray. And wait for guidance. If you wait for guidance, God will, I believe, give you that guidance and will keep you from a lot of heartache. So um, may God help us to, uh, to follow the wisdom of Solomon, you know, to trust in God with all of our heart and don't lean on our own human perception of the situation. In every important decision, and I would even include a lot of smaller decisions, but in everything, you know, we seek him, we acknowledge him, we bring him into the situation, we, we pray, we want his will. And if we do that, he promises to direct our path, to guide us in making the right decisions. May God help us to do that. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have put stories in your word like this to teach us that if we rely on our own human understanding and senses, Lord, Satan can easily deceive us and the consequences could last a lifetime. But if we are looking to you, if we are progressing slowly, Father, we know the devil will try to tell us, hey, you need to enter into this situation right now. There's an opportunity. If you don't enter in right now, it's going to be gone. You need to act right now. Lord, that is the time we know we should not act. That is the time we know we should wait and pray. Because if you want us to enter into a very important decision, you will always give us time to pray. The devil wants us to act hastily. Because that's when he can really deceive us and trip us up. So, Lord, give us grace. Father, so often I see Christians who sit under the teaching of your word and they nod their heads when we talk about things like this and how important it is to pray and to seek you. And then they walk out of here and when it comes to making a very important life decision, they just wing it. They just do whatever they think is right. And then they reap the consequences. And they think that you have failed them. Lord, you don't fail us. We fail you. You are faithful. And you will do exactly what you've promised if we will be faithful to doing what you've commanded us to do. So, Lord, thank you. We just praise you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.